This is Supervised Learning, a podcast where the Merlin Mind team learns from experts in artificial intelligence, technology, and education. We hope you enjoy learning with us through these conversations with those who know. Time to learn. Welcome to the podcast, Satya. I'm very excited for us to have this conversation because the world needs to know what we're doing here at Merlin Mind. So <laughs> how about you start us off by telling us a little about who you are and what Merlin Mind is and why it matters. Thank you, Levi. Glad to be here and glad to tell, tell the world our story. Uh, so I'm a technologist. Uh, I've been a technologist my entire career. And uh, Merlin Mind is an AI technology company. Uh, we exist at uh, kind of the intersection of the, the science in AI, which is moving forward at a thrilling pace. And, and the world of uh, right applications, uh, right? So we we believe firmly that uh, we can take the the science and apply it to uh, improve the lives of uh, right people everywhere. And that's kind of what Merlin Mind is. It's a company that exists at this intersection. We look at ourselves as translators, and the first industry uh, that we are going after in a very uh, concerted way is the education industry. Okay, and we're going to talk a lot more today about. AI and education and what we're doing and why it matters. But let's rewind and talk about your background a little bit. Like, what's your story? And like, what motivates and inspires you? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, ever since I was, uh, I was a child, I was interested in, um, in science and science fiction. And uh, this is a, right, it's this funny story, which uh, I tell, I tell my friends, uh, which is, you know, how did I get in, interested in science fiction in the first place? So I had a brother, he was four years, he was four years older than me. And uh, at that time I was 11, 12, and uh, one day he came home with a, with a book by Asimov. Uh, I think it was iRobot and other stories. And uh, of course, you know, he was reading the book, so I was forbidden to read the book at that time. So he had to finish it, and then maybe I can get the scraps afterwards, right? So, but uh, I just remember looking at the cover and the back page and the back cover and, and being so entranced that I couldn't wait for him to finish the book. Uh, so I used to wake up in the middle of the night and kind of sneak into his room, take the book and read it under the light of the, the naked bulb that was you know, hanging outside our bathroom. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I got into it. It just, uh, this, this future world that Asimov was writing about, uh, robots, right? Uh, mankind spreading to the stars. It was so entrancing that, uh, that I felt, uh, you know, uh, this is something that uh, I want to actually grow up and be a part of. Uh, this actually leads to right, a very well-known phenomenon. So I'm by no means uh, unique in this, right? Uh, there's something called the Star Trek effect, which is, you know, young people uh, watch shows like Star Trek or read books by people like Asimov and Clark back in the right, uh, 70s and 80s, uh, or these days, you know, I guess, uh, Neil Gaiman, etc. Um, and, and they want to grow up and build that world. They want to grow up and live in that world and build that world. So, 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 so really, a lot of my motivation was inspired by great works of uh, right, uh, art, of uh, fiction, literature, uh, etc. So, uh, so, so that's kind of how the whole thing started, how the interest in, in technology and science started for me. How fun. So you are now living your childhood dream. <laughs> You're using technology to try to create a better world. Like that's a, that's a fun path to be on. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of stories we can write, lots of little, right. Uh, rat holes we can go down here, but, but this, and as you, as you grow up and as you learn more about the world and everything else, you know, you, you basically, 
you know, uh, realize that uh, technology, in fact, has uh, an enormous uh, potential to change the world, right? And so at its core, right, at, at, at the core for people like, uh, for, for all of us, I guess, right, uh, there's this enduring uh, belief in the power of technology to change the world and, uh, right, uh, to, uh, to create a better world and to right, uh, create a slightly more utopian uh, right, situation for all of us. And that's kind of why Merlin Mind exists, uh, right? We saw an opportunity, we saw the evolution of AI uh, at the last decade has been head spinning in the, in the evolution of AI from, you know, uh, Hinton publishing about uh, deep learning, deep belief nets, Watson winning Jeopardy, uh, right? Uh, deep learning as a, right, as a field really coming of age, uh, right? Uh, advancing, you know, language understanding, speech recognition, image recognition, right? And these days, uh, right, helping um, generate language, right? Uh, all these things have incredible potential, right? Uh, computers helping take decisions. And so, so what we are really entranced by is the idea that, you know, how do we take these uh, fundamental advances and turn them into products that really make a difference to people? Yeah. So let's let's dig into a few of those topics specifically. Uh, before we do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your journey through technology in your career. I mean, I guess you kind of have come into technology in an interesting time because you started before we had computers in our pockets that could do almost anything, but you were really part of the foundational technology efforts to make that possible with advancing Moore's Law while you were at IBM. Just tell us about kind of your trajectory and like what you've seen in your career. Sure. Yeah. No. It's it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I've I've had a, a, this abiding love of computing, right? Uh, so we talked a little bit about my childhood, and kind of the the the, the history of uh, science fiction and and shaping shaping me, right? But uh, you know, I finished my uh, PhD uh, in the late nineteen eighty, in the late nineteen nineties. I'm sorry, um, and uh, and I joined the IBM Watson Labs uh, about a year after, and. Uh, I was, so I was at IBM Watson Labs at a very interesting time. Now, IBM Watson Labs is one of the places, arguably one of the few places on the planet, uh, that had a significant role to play in the evolution of computing itself, uh, right? Uh, we had, uh, so down the hall from where my office was, Bob Denard had an office. Uh, Bob Denard, for those who don't know, is the guy who invented the, the DRAM, who invented Denard scaling, which is kind of the, uh, the underpinning for by which Moore's law actually uh, right, progressed. Moore's law was an observation, but Denard scaling made it to reality. And so Bob uh, Denard was a legend in the industry. And, uh, and so he, he's still there, by the way. Uh, and so growing up around people like Bob Denard, uh, uh, Mandelbrot, uh, right, who obviously discovered fractal geometry, uh, Charlie Bennett, who advanced quantum information theory, it was a heady place to be. And my early years, the first part of my career, I guess, uh, right, um, my first 12, uh, 10, 11, 12 years was really spent in the company of a number of, um, you know, giants who were helping advance computing. And uh, it was a thrilling time to be there, uh, right, working on uh, very esoteric problems that were important to solve for the next generation of chips to be made. Mm. Uh, but along the way, uh, I also got, uh, I've, I've been interested in AI for a very, very long time. And uh, IBM Research and IBM Watson Labs was one of the places where some of the early advances in AI also happened. Uh, Deep Blue Bit Kasparov, uh, the early demonstrations of speech recognition, computer vision, using an older technology at this point, uh, right? Feature engineering, uh, they all happened there. Uh, 
uh, and then Watson on Jeopardy, right? Uh, and uh, so I happened to be, I got very fortunate in that I happened to have, right? I happened to be kind of uh, around, uh, uh, I happened to be on staff around the time Watson on Jeopardy. And uh, there was a job I had, I think in 2010, where IBM was celebrating their centennial and uh, and the head of IBM research, uh, right? I came to, okay, he, he put together a small team of four people. I was one of them. And he basically said to us, we want to write this very visionary story of the future of computing, right? Mm. So your job is to help write the story, go figure out, right? Uh, you know, uh, how computing will, will, will evolve and how it can transform the world. And uh, it was perfect for somebody like me. I spent all my life dreaming about it. <laughs> and uh, right? I'm a dreamer and a builder and a tinkerer and this was perfect. And uh, so, so we realized, one of the things we realized very early on is, look, the farther back we see, Right, the history of computing, how it evolved, the farther forward we can project. Uh, but you know, eventually, uh, trying to forecast, you wanted this 100-year vision of the future of computing, and trying to trying to predict that was just going to be really, really difficult. Mm. Um, and so we said, we went back and said, how about we talk to you about the next 25 years of uh, right of, of computing? And and he said, deal, right? Mm -hmm. And this is at the time David Ferrucci and his team were preparing for the the Jeopardy tournament uh, with Watson, right? Can, so can you can you actually tell us a little bit more about? I mean, for those listening. Yeah. Why was Watson beating Jeopardy such a big deal? What was what happened then? What was different with computing? Like, why was that such a watershed moment that changed the way humans and computers interact? Yeah, good question, right? So, uh, the, if, if you look at the history of AI, right, um, you know, the field uh, has advanced. I mean, there's obviously lots of background technology that was uh, being built, but the field seemed to make leaps through these kinds of demonstrations, big demonstrations, Kasparov beating. Right, being beaten by Deep Blue, uh, which is the first demonstration of a chess chess playing machine or computer beating a human, mm. right? Um, and not just uh, any human, though they, not just any human, right? Like the best human, <laughs> the best, yeah, the 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 impact one of the greatest players in the history of uh, of right. uh, the game, right? Um, and um, so, so Watson winning Jeopardy was an interesting, uh, right, uh, advance uh, along the same vein in that uh, Jeopardy is a very complex game, right? It's not just a uh, a test of your factual knowledge of uh, right of uh, right of uh, facts around the world, but it's also an understanding of language. The language there is very complex. There are puns and there are allusions and right uh, and it's and you have to kind of unpack what it is the what is the focus of the question and what what the answer is and all of that in a very short period of time, and and it's not simple. The the the, uh, the queries are quite complex and and so people who play it well get really good at parsing the language. Uh, unpacking the the allusions and the puns and trying to figure out what is it that uh, they're trying to uh, to, uh, to answer and and chiming in all within you know the matter of uh, two or three seconds to 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 get to get to the right answer. So Watson was a demonstration of the ability of computing to actually do this to understand language, a complex language, and to retrieve uh, important uh, right uh, information very rapidly. And uh, and it was a demonstration of a machine getting so good at it that it could be the two most winning champions in the history of Jeopardy, right? Yeah. It was a pretty watershed moment in computing, uh, right? Of course, subsequently we have AlphaGo beating the world's best uh, Go player, uh, right? From DeepMind, uh, right? But but I was there, I happened to be at IBM Research at a time when this happened, it was just completely mind blowing and very inspiring. 
and yeah. uh, and the subsequent interest that that we saw from uh, right all corners of the world people from different walks of life whether it's uh, healthcare professionals educators uh, right uh, uh, the legal profession right finance all all industries were interested in what can i do with this ability right uh, and so so i happened to be there at ibm at that time right? yeah. so so that got me so that was the transition from uh, for me, when that happened, I said, you know, I actually, I've, I've been dabbling around in AI and in uh, a fairly obscure field called neuromorphic computing before that. Mm. And so the demonstration happened and I realized I need to actually be a part of this thing. Right? Okay. And so, and I jumped onto, onto the bandwagon and I was given this incredible opportunity to uh, right, take Watson, right, lead the charge with Watson in education. And that's kind of when my whole journey began in this, in this field. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you did with the Watson Lab and all the research at Watts at IBM for education. Like, what did you try to solve? What problems were you looking at? What types sure. of things did you learn? What were the successes? What were the failures? Just tell me, like, what what did you gather from that experience? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question, right? In fact, uh, I look at Merlin Mind, uh, this company, and what we're doing here now as a right um, as as kind of an end product of all the lessons we learned there. Right? Yeah. Uh, so back in 2012, 2013, when I was given the charter, right, uh, uh, it was it was this incredible opportunity, and I was sitting at the IBM Watson Labs, a storied history, and and so one of the things I went back and uh, right uh, talked to the leadership about there was I said, look, you know, I don't feel that we should just be um, building something incremental, right, uh, here. Uh, we could be doing something very grand, uh, right, and it kind of made sense. You're you're in an R&D lab, you have uh, thousands of PhDs. You have uh, right, uh, you know, a decent uh, budget, mm. and and uh, I thought it was a kind of an opportunity to go after one of the grand challenges in AI, along with, of course, doing a bunch of other very useful things with uh, with Watson and education, and uh, and so one of the grand challenges in AI, if you trace back to the history of the field in the 1950s, uh, right, uh, mid to late 1950s, the founders of the field used to say. You know, why would so they used to be asked all the time? They kind of envisioned intelligent computing machines, Alan Turing, and then subsequently Simon, Newell, Marvin Minsky, all these people, uh, right? They used to talk very passionately about intelligent machines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 1940s, 1950s, post war. And people used to ask them, why would you need an intelligent machine? And, and one of the use cases they would advance was we would like a computer to teach. Right? Interesting. And and so so when I was given this charter, I'm like, you know, that's going to be a hard challenge, but it's worth going after it, right? Mm. Uh, because of course, you know, you're in a research lab in one of the more storied places on the planet. And um, and I realized if I had to do it right, also I had to understand a little bit about intelligence, uh, how the brain works, neuroscience, et cetera, right? Uh, and about two, three, four years into it. And so we said, okay, maybe we need to build intelligent tutoring systems and two, three, four years into it, the magnitude of the challenge really dawned on us. So we went after it uh, in a bit of a foolhardy way, I would say at this point, right? And the magnitude of the challenge really dawned on us. We are like, okay, you know, we need to start, take a step back and realize that there are, the progress in, in AI, right? Uh, is all about 
scoping the problem well, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, building it uh, in a very domain specific, very scoped fashion. And and there are things that people do, and things things to things that people do really well, and things that computers do really well. And getting a computer to do something people do really well is kind of a, not only is it a bit of a waste of time, uh, but it's also exceedingly hard because the technology is still very limited, mm. right? Uh, and and so so one of the big lessons we learned was. Um, you know, scope the problem well. The technology is still very limited, uh, but it's within the limitations of the technology that the technology that you can do something really interesting, right? And and something that can impact people immediately rather than in the next 30, 40 years, right? Yeah. So so these were all lessons that led to the founding of this company. Okay, so let's go next there after the one question. You yeah. mentioned that humans are really good at some things that teachers aren't or that the, the, the computers aren't, and that when you looked at getting a, te- a computer to teach, it was very difficult. So what are teachers so good at? What was it about teaching and learning? What's so complex? Why was it so easy for humans to be great teachers and not easy for a teacher to be a great, for yeah, a computer to be a great teacher? Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, a bit of a doozy, but let me, let me attempt to <laughs> answer this. Yeah. Right? So, so, so what do teachers do well? So first of all, you know, teachers motivate, right? More than anything else, you know, I have the suspicion that people learn from people, right? Better than they learn from anything else, right? Uh, and teachers are brilliant at not just motivation or motivating people, but but the 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 ability to communicate ideas using right references, using the shared background knowledge of the world, uh, understanding right uh, the uh, the cognitive uh, right, I guess. Uh, uh, so the 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 kind of the, the cognitive space of uh, what they're trying to teach, as well as uh, you know how people are uh, receiving the knowledge, right? Mm. Uh, are they motivated? Are they bored? Are they excited? What are they interested in? This ability to personalize it, this ability to figure out the cognitive state of the learner, and to deliver information in a really impactful way is like a deeply human process. It's uh, they're brilliant at it. Yeah. Machines are not going to get there for for a very very long time, if ever. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what we realized that you know this is actually a problem where people are brilliant. This is a deeply human process. Uh, computers are terrible at this. It's a waste of time trying to do this. But computers are great at other things, right? And and the, while the technology is still limited in what it can do, working within the, within the limitations, exploiting what they're very good at, and helping. Right, uh, improve things like productivity for people, and the symbiosis between, you know, getting humans to do what they're very good at and getting computers to do what they what they're very good at is really how this whole field will advance over the next uh, right, 20, 30, 40 years, in my opinion. Okay, so then let's go to what Merlin Mind is and how you kind of scoped the problem. You mentioned that you learned all these things about education, about AI, about where it works, where it doesn't work, and then as a result of all those learnings, you had to start a new company. Why? Why did you have to create Merlin Mind and how did you focus? What was it that you thought you could do with AI to make humans and teachers and computers work better together? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, so some of the early inspirations for this company, right, uh, were uh, digital assistants like Siri, like Alexa, right? Uh, but even earlier than that, I'll, I, again, I'll, I'll answer the story, but I, I'd love for it, I'll answer the question, but I, I love framing it within, within kind of the broader context of computing and awesome. stories. And, yeah, do right? it. Yeah, so 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 one of uh, so as you know, right, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge fan of science fiction. And uh, back in grad school in the in the early '90s, I read this book by William Gibson called Neuromancer, uh, 
Uh, and Neuromancer is arguably one of the most important sci-fi novels, science fiction novels of the last uh, 30, 40 years. And, uh, and so Neuromancer is a book that kind of spawned off this entire subgenre of science fiction called cyber fiction, mm. right? And, uh, and, and it's the story behind how William Gibson, Gibson came to write Neuromancer that's very interesting. But the book itself uh, dealt with uh, right, uh, grand themes of uh, right humans being immersed in in computing in this virtual world, and and so the whole field of VR, the Matrix movies, they all kind of owe uh, right inspiration to this novel in some fashion. Okay. Right? Um, and so William Gibson, when he uh, was uh, when he wrote Neuromancer, just before he wrote Neuromancer, was a young man. He was basically unknown. He'd only written two short stories ever in his life one of which was Journey Mnemonic, which has been made into a movie starring uh, Keanu Reeves, uh, right? And um, and so he was given, suddenly he was given an advance and he had, he was maybe 19, 20, 21, right? At the time, very young fellow. And, and, uh, and given an advance, there were all these people expecting him to be the next big thing. And he had a bit of a writer's block. And uh, so the story goes that one day he was walking down the streets in Toronto in the 1980s. But at that time, he had never seen a personal computer and, or interacted with one, right? The PC, I think the IBM PC was 1981 or something like that. And he, he hadn't really interacted with one. And uh, so he was walking down the street and he happened to look into a storefront and it was a video game arcade. You remember, so in the 1980s, there was Space Invader, Pac-Man, these were the early video games. And what he saw was the people who were playing the game were so entranced by, by, by this uh, interaction with computing, by this interaction with this virtual world, that it, it spawned this imagery of, uh, for him of people disappearing into the computer. And, and that's mm -hmm. kind of how he came to write Neuromancer. Uh, so, so for me, you know, books like that were, were a deep inspiration. The Star Trek effect where Captain Picard's talking to a computer, this data, this ability to interact with computing in this very seamless, very intuitive fashion uh, has been kind of an inspiration throughout my career. Um, and so when Siri came out, it was really interesting. Of course, before Siri, there were uh, assistants like Jabberwocky, you could basically type to it, it could type back, uh, Eliza, the early chatbots. All these are things that you know we all played with. And Siri came out, it was very compelling. And then Alexa came out in 2015, and it was the first significant concerted effort to bring voice computing into, into the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 2014, 2015, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant inspirational product, right? Uh, so when we looked at all of this, we said, look, you know, these guys are going after, right? A very large open domain problem. They're going after uh, assistants, helping people within the flow of our lives. And that's mm -hmm. kind of a hard challenge, but of course these are uh, big, huge companies with, uh, with uh, thousands of brilliant engineers. Uh, and we felt that there was still an opportunity. In fact, the way the field will advance is, you know, lots of people, lots of companies like us taking cuts at making advances in specific areas. And we felt there's, there's still an opportunity to take these digital assistants and, uh, and bring them into fields like education, right? Uh, and, uh, and we also realized back from my uh, right, uh, Watson uh, intelligent tutoring experiments that scoping the problem is really important. So, so we said, okay, we don't have to be Alexa or Siri. We can be something different, mm. uh, right? We don't have to try to be solving the open domain problem. We can solve something very specific. And, and so kind of a hypothesis behind this company, uh, one of the many, but one of the more important ones is that if you scope the problem, 
right? Uh, if you say, I am going to help a teacher or a student, and further, I'm going to help them do something very specific, a teacher trying to teach, right, in a classroom, or uh, prepare lessons at home, or a student trying to do homework. Mm. If you scope the problem quite specific, right, quite well, right, and then you say, and now it's all about trying to build, uh, trying to build all the, bring all the advances in AI that are happening to the service of this problem. Uh, we can actually get people to to interact with assistants in a very deeply, uh, right, intuitive fashion. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're about in this company. So the hypothesis here is, we do this well. You get real adoption. You make a real difference to people. You understand where what uh, machines can do really well, which is take the burden of doing mundane things away from them and improve their productivity, leave them to doing what, what they do really well, what humans do really well, which is teach, impart knowledge, impart wisdom, motivate their students, right, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of the, 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 the idea behind this company. Okay, so you bring some of your former team, you attract a lot of other really amazing people to this company, and you go to say, we're going to help teachers with AI, we're going to build a digital assistant, we're going to help them with their work, not replace them. Were there any surprises along the way? Has it been smooth sailing? Or did you learn? Have we learned some things in the last? Well, years? I mean, yeah, so even here, uh, lots of surprises, right? Uh, so maybe again, a story here would illustrate uh, yeah. right, uh, the, the advances we made here. So when we first started this company, uh, we were, as I said, we were pretty inspired by Alexa, and we kind of took the inspiration literally, which is Alexa is this voice assistant, right? At that time, uh, it didn't have a display. It was uh, this Echo Dot, right? And uh, and we said, oh, we need to build a voice assistant for education, uh, right? And uh, But we, we thought, okay, we'll also power a display. I think the first Alexa display product had just come out at that time. But we'd already started and said, you know, we have to be about voice being, right? Uh, being there to help orchestrate uh, a teacher's workflow. Uh, but uh, but it has to manifest uh, itself on a right? the assistant has to manifest itself on a, on on the front of room classroom display right um, and then in the early days uh, we attracted a, a very important investor from the from the valley uh, one of the biggest uh, VC VC firms uh, right and uh, they were very interested in what we were doing uh, and they came down and they they said we want to see a demo of what you guys are building and we've been tooling around for about a year and a half at the time made some advances, uh, right? We realized we have to scope the problem even further to a teacher in the classroom. And then the demo gods hit, right? High stakes demo and we failed, right? Uh, the, we had like a, an HVAC system go off, the voice translation wasn't perfect, uh, right? And, uh, and so it was an underwhelming demo. We never landed the investment and it made me sit back and think very deeply about what we were trying to solve. Right. And uh, so, I mean, this is just in the user interface. I'll talk a little bit more about the, the jobs to be done or the specific mm -hmm. problem in a second. But 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 what it made me realize is, um, you know, first of all, voice as a modality uh, is a bit of a difficult uh, right, modality to, to bring to life and to um, uh, right to get users to adopt it. First of all, right, I, among other things, what voice computing is trying to do is uh, replace both the keyboard and the mouse simultaneously, right? We use keyboard and mice to interact with computing and you're taking them both away and saying, talk to a machine instead, right? Mm. And, and we also know that you can talk to a machine like you and I can talk to each other, right? right? Uh, so, so this starts putting some real barriers to, right, uh, to how it will work, where it will work, right? And then further, there's all kinds of situations. Classrooms have unique noise, uh, right? In education, the language is very different. You're saying, 
graph x minus three and and most of the speech systems think you're trying to say graphics or something right mm -hmm. uh, so there's all this notion that look i need to build something in a very domain specific fashion i'm trying to replace the keyboard and the mouse with just one modality and that's kind of a bridge too far so so we stepped back thought thought about it and said we need to bring in a second modality or more right it has to be it's not about voice computing as much as computing and an inter and, a, and, a, and a much more native interaction with computing coming to the rescue of uh, right uh, the, i wouldn't say rescue of teachers which sounds very grand but coming coming to the assistance of teachers right mm -hmm. uh, and so we said okay let's start uh, bringing in other modalities like an intelligent remote uh, right which has which allows you to uh, interact with clicks and uh, right uh, uh, with with uh, with an air mouse uh, interact with computing at a distance uh, right so these were some foundational insights that it's about multimodality it's about um, you know, bringing in two or three modalities uh, and stitching them together. So it's very native, natural for them to use voice where it makes sense to search and use uh, like this intelligent remote to, to click on things and to advance their presentations. So these were important foundational lessons. Right. But the most important lesson of all was about what do you do with these things? And you had a very big role to play, yeah. right? In fact, maybe I need to turn the lesson back, the question back to you. <laughs> maybe you want to tell us a little bit about jobs to be done, and then I can tell you how we're applying it here. I won't take the mic for long, but basically at any innovation, you have to start with a problem, an opportunity. What are you going to solve, right? We were going to bring voice and AI into the classroom, and you could do almost anything with that. So where do you start? What is actually needed? And we went into classrooms. And we sat in classrooms and we talked to teachers and we listened to them and we said, what are you currently doing? What's hard? What would you like to do that you're struggling to succeed at? And what we heard was, I don't need another app. I have so many apps. Don't give me one more app. Don't give me one more content resource. Help me use all this amazing technology I have. Help me manage it so that I can keep my eyes on my students and I can engage with them without having to constantly be going back and messing with the technology. And so we came back together and I talked to you and we talked to the team. We said, look what we're hearing. And then we saw a starting point. It wasn't the end point, but it yeah. was, wow, AI could be very, very good at helping teachers orchestrate all the tools they're using. So yeah, you keep going then. So what, yeah, what did that no, lead absolutely. to? Right, so, so that's the thing, right? So, so we talked about scoping a problem. We talked briefly about domain specificity, right? About building computers that understand the language of the domain, right? Uh, when you say, open my presentation on Google Slides, you're not saying Google Flights. Right, it slides. Right, right. Uh, so there's uh, all these things are important, but the most important of all is right. Um, and we talked a little bit about look, what are computers good at? What are humans good at? Right. And the, so, so the most important lesson of all here is, it's about deeply understanding human workflows, the teacher's workflow. Right. Right. I mean, a, a successful AI application. In fact, all the successful AI applications on the planet have have had these features or these attributes. They're domain specific. They're solving well-scope problems, and they're deeply aware of the 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 workflow or the right uh, or the specific task they're doing. So in our case, we had to study teacher workflows very deeply. Realize that, uh, in fact, because of uh, even before COVID, but especially because of COVID, there's so many uh, right uh, apps in the classroom, so many devices. So each student has a laptop. Uh, teachers have their own computer. There's a big screen, right, smart TV or a smart panel, uh, the document cameras, 
and uh, they're working with 30, 40, 50 different applications during the course of a teaching week, right? Um, and, and they're spending a lot of time orchestrating across all this technology, right? And, and so, so in fact, you led the effort, uh, but, but what we discovered is if we take some of the burden away, make it more intuitive, untether them from the desk so they're more with their students as opposed to right, navigating all the applications and these devices, uh, they are likely to right uh, to to want to use this more. They're likely to spend more time with their students. Uh, they're likely to be less burdened cognitively by having to switch between them. So 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 the final piece of the puzzle, but the most important one is you know build uh, right uh, an application that solves a problem for them that's within the 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 the, the flow of their work. Right. Mm. So so if you put it all together, then we're about domain specificity, scope problems deeply workflow aware and multimodal. These are kind of the foundational elements for what, what we're doing with the Merlin Digital Assistant for, uh, for education. Right, and what we've seen so far from educators is they're pretty thrilled that someone is bringing this technology just for them, right? I think if you look back in the history of education technology, we're not always getting the most cutting edge tech into classrooms first. In fact, Lots of times, I don't know, for whatever reason, AI hasn't really benefited education too much yet. And that may be because people didn't scope the problem right or because they didn't understand the technology and what it was capable of. Yeah. So there were a few things that stood as barriers to bringing educate AI into education. Can you talk a little bit about the privacy and security piece of this and the trade-offs that you saw happening on the consumer front and how that kind of directed you into starting this company in the way you did? Yeah, no, that's a great, a great question. Another foundational pillar for what we do, right? So, so again, you know, uh, so when I look at the consumer digital assistants, uh, while they've been deeply inspirational, uh, one of the the things that we saw and one of the barriers that we saw uh, was that, uh, right? Uh, you know, this whole idea that there's this choice between this, uh, right? Uh, you have to give up your data for me to do something useful for you. Uh, we felt that was a bit of a false choice, right? Uh, we felt that, look, why can't we simply get you the technology without actually taking your data and selling it to advertisers or mm. doing something with it, right? Uh, and in fact, in fields like education, healthcare, a bunch of public sector uh, fields, uh, right? Very sensitive fields where data is, uh, is, is actually uh, sacrosanct, right? And you really cannot uh, be uh, right, um, irresponsible with how you handle it, right? Uh, you don't really have a choice. You have to take care of the data very, very carefully. Right? So we built this company with privacy at its core. Right? We do not ever sell people's data, whether it's uh, right, voice data or any other form of data. In fact, we delete it. We don't even use people's voice data to train and improve our own models. Right? And we're in the, pro in, the, in the business of selling you a product that does something useful for you, and, not, and you're not the product, and your data is not the product. We sell you a product, and your data is yours, and we delete it, and we don't use anything with it. Right? Uh, we don't use it in that area. we don't use it to do anything with uh, with it right so so privacy is a very foundational principle here and this false choice of giving up your data so you can have access to computing is something we reject we reject the premise and then we're here to try to bring you the latest advances in ai to improve uh, right uh, your own life uh, uh, at work so let's talk about is it working we've now been at this for about 4 years you founded merlin mind almost 4 years ago right um and what's going on? Like, what's the status of classrooms and teachers using Merlin in the classroom? And what does it look like when they get assistance from Merlin? Oh boy, Levi, the, the response has been overwhelming, right? Uh, we have so many fans and uh, 
I'm thrilled with how well we've, we've been received by, uh, by the industry, by not just by teachers, but by administrators, right? Uh, I'm also thrilled with this mission attracting incredible talent to this company, you know, people like you joining us, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a mission that everybody can, can get behind, right? Uh, using AI to improve education, who doesn't want to be a part of that, right? right? So, yeah, I mean, the, the response has been amazing. Uh, so we've been in pilots, uh, we've been in over a couple hundred different classrooms, uh, right? We are, anecdotally, what we know is teachers are using Merlin from the data, teachers are using Merlin every six minutes, uh, and that's just the beginning, right? We are still uh, working out exactly what to do with Merlin in a way that deeply improves productivity, right? We're kind of scratching the surface. We know it's about creating shortcuts for them, right? Uh, taking away uh, the, 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 as much of the, the mundane clicks and keystrokes and interactions with computing as, as we can, right? And automating them uh, with shortcuts. But, but even where we are, even given the, the few things Merlin does today, uh, it's been, a, the response has been tremendous. People love it. They love what it does today and they love the vision for where we're taking this next. So what is that next thing? So let's just say like fast forward, five, 10, 15, 20 years, if yeah. Merlin Mind is successful, what changes in classrooms around the globe? What, what looks different with how teachers and students interact with computing as part of the learning process? Yeah, so I can give you again, look, you know, 20 year horizon is very hard to predict, but I can give you kind of a five year view of yeah. where we think we're going, right? Um, so, so I kind of, I mean, there are many different ways to look at Merlin Mind, the company and the Merlin assistant, but one view uh, that, uh, that I have that I'd like to, one way I look at this thing is, we're kind of at the intersection of uh, process automation and a digital assistant. So we're bringing AI and AI assistants uh, and marrying them with uh, automation techniques, right? Uh, to, to bring you advances in productivity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what this means is in the near future, in say three, four, five years time, uh, we would have built all kinds of automations across all kinds of ad tech apps. So we're not bringing yet another app. We're kind of an infrastructure layer that allows teachers to uh, do something that would have taken, you know, five, six, seven steps and, uh, and a bit of cognitive load associated with it, uh, right? That would have taken all these things, but we can take that and collapse it all into one step, uh, one voice command or one click, right? An example being, share this link with all my students, right? Uh, so normally a teacher would have to open Google Classroom, find the student roster, copy the link, put it into an email, send it out, and we can automate that whole thing with one command, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the, the near future, the three, four, five-year future of uh, where we're going is we'll have all kinds of automations across the most popular ed tech apps in the classroom. Teachers will be controlling student computers along with their computer, which they control today with, uh, with Merlin, right? Uh, so for instance, show, let's say you're a student in the classroom, show Levi's laptop up on the main screen because you solved a problem, uh, right? Uh, that you want uh, to use as a teaching moment for everybody else, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so orchestrating across all the devices, uh, having Merlin suggest, uh, right? Uh, some interesting new, uh, right? Uh, pieces of content, uh, right? So, so the, the classroom experience becomes much more fluid with all the technology that you're interacting with in a seamless fashion, right? Uh, but Merlin also follows you home, uh, helps you prepare for class as a teacher, helps students uh, find their homework, uh, answers a few questions for them, or finds them the best human tutor, right? Mm -hmm. Again, we talked about tutoring being a deeply human process, right? right? Uh, beyond, you know, answering a few questions here and there, or beyond things like finding your homework or 
uh, right, uh, finding information that's relevant to you as a student, uh, we don't envision uh, computing will, will actually significantly solve the problem of uh, teaching people by itself, right? But Merlin's here to do something very useful uh, by making them more productive. So, so that's kind of the future that we envision. Merlin is in student computers, smartphones, uh, in the front of room display, uh, right? Uh, in teachers' computers, it's orchestrating across all the things that teachers interact with. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the immediate future for Merlin. And that's really our focus, where we're looking now. But how do you see that fitting into the larger picture of how technology and human interaction evolves? Like what's going to happen with digital assistants and computing and humans as we look forward? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So, so if we step back a little bit, um, you know, what I am thrilled by are the advances that are happening in AI at the forefront of the science, at the frontiers of the science, right? Uh, DeepMind is a deeply inspiring company. DeepMind, OpenAI, these companies are pushing the science forward at a thrilling, in a thrilling fashion, and it's evolving very rapidly. Um, but the science by itself, uh, right? While what what they're what they're showing, the ability of a computer to generate language, generate code, images, right? Uh, co-create with you, it's thrilling. How we take that and apply it to uh, right, a specific domain like education or healthcare is where all the action will be, right? Mm. Uh, it's the action, it, I mean, of course, there's this action at the forefront of the science, but there's a huge gulf between what's happening there and what we could do with it to, to improve the world, right? And that's kind of where we play, where people like us will play. We, I, I look at at, at this company as we're one of the translators of the science to products that make a difference, right? Um, so, so, so the near future will be about uh, taking these advances and applying them to domains like education, healthcare, right? Uh, heavy industry, uh, bringing deep productivity gains, right? Getting computing to be much more intuitive to use, right? Uh, voice and multimodal, uh, right? Uh, gestures and Right? Getting computing to be kind of a, it's, 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 you're not even thinking about it. The best technology fades into the background in a very seamless fashion. It's just interacting with, with life in, in many ways, right? Uh, and then trying to accomplish your tasks. So, so the next 30 years will be about building a lot of these applications. It's still an art, it's not a science, right? Uh, to do this well, if you recap, uh, right, what we talked about earlier, the work you did about understanding workflows very deeply, uh, the importance of multimodality, the importance of specifying the problem and scoping it, the importance of uh, building something that's very domain uh, adapted and uh, right, specific to the domain. All these foundational pillars are going to be uh, right, critical to uh, taking the science and turning them into products that really change the world. And that's really how I see AI, uh, the AI revolution rolling out. This is the most profound transformational revolution that I've seen in my lifetime for sure right mm. but it will it will make it will basically roll out industry by industry application by application carefully built carefully engineered uh, right um, and and eventually it will have deeply transformative uh, uh, effects uh, the idea that you can even talk to a computer leave alone create with a computer is just completely mind blowing to me right mm. and I'm looking forward to this future uh, materializing and being a part of it well, it's, it's very inspiring to all of us who've joined Merlin Mind. We have an incredible company with people across every different discipline and area of expertise that are committed to this vision of helping to create a better future with technology. You as our leader have inspired us. We're excited to be part of this, but I'm curious, 
as we look at the world and you see all the challenges and the problems and current events, how do you find such optimism about the future? I know that AI plays such a big role in it. Like, what is it that inspires you about why the world can be better because of technology? That's a great question. I mean, so I, I'll go back to DeepMind and its founder, Demis Asabis, uh, who, right, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, uh, I'm unashamed to say I'm a bit of a groupie, right? Uh, <laughs> for those of you who haven't uh, read up about him or heard him, I would uh, advise you to go listen to his interviews. Uh, is a brilliant mind, very, very brilliant fellow, making a huge impact in the world, right? And, and he said what a lot of us feel, right? Uh, uh, now the world has a lot of problems. We all know that, right? Uh, we're living. We just uh, we're living through a pandemic. There's wars going on, right? Uh, there's global warming. Huge problems. Um, and so, how do you solve them? You can either say, you know, I'm going to have a transform. I'm I'm going to impose, or I'm going to hope for a transformational change in human behavior. Mm. Or you can say, I can take technology and its transformative potential and build uh, right uh, solutions with it that could actually transform the world. And so, I'm a deep believer. And the right and 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 trying to change human behavior is very hard. We all know that. Mm. But I'm a deep believer in the enduring power of technology to transform the world, to change the world. Already, we are living in incredible times thanks to all the great technology, science and technology that our forefathers and our ancestors basically uh, created. Right? Uh, we, you and I, are talking over a computer. You're a few thousand miles from me. Right? right. Uh, uh, I come from India, and uh, right, uh, and right, uh, with flying across in this, uh, uh, you know, several ton machine uh, over mm -hmm. over oceans, and uh, we have great uh, uh, progress in medicine that that, that improved lifespans. So technology has had an incredible impact on the world already, but it will continue to to have a deeply transformative uh, impact on the world. So I'm I'm a huge believer in it. I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm a technologist. And I like to believe that, you know, throwing yourself at hard problems, uh, right, and, uh, and just chipping away at them will lead to, uh, lead to us creating this, this future vision that people in Star Trek and in these incredible science fiction novels imagine. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my inspiration. Oh, I love it. Okay, so last question for you then. Why education and why is that the problem that needs to be solved? And if you, are, if you do have this impact on education with AI, why does that make the world a better place for all of us? Oh, well, I mean, education is so foundational, isn't it, right? Mm. Uh, it touches everybody on the planet, right? Uh, from the remotest corners of India and Africa to, right, uh, to, to, right, uh, to the, 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 right to the to, to places like new york city it touches everybody right uh, and so what we believe is if you if you make a change in if you if you help improve education uh, you'll create a world where people are more informed they make better choices they they have much better life outcomes for themselves right uh, we 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 have more people trying to solve these very difficult problems we're all trying to face and they're trying to solve it in more informed fashion so education is one of those fields that has a deeply transformative uh, impact on the world, right? And improving learning outcomes, helping teachers by freeing their time up to improve learning outcomes. They're the best levers to improve learning outcomes, right? Uh, I can't think of a better problem to, 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 to bring AI to, especially a field like education where we've been slow to digitize. It's, uh, it's uh, right, uh, I wouldn't mm. say it's one of the last industries, but it certainly lagged behind other industries a little bit in terms of embracing digital technologies, right? So there's huge untapped potential here. 
and uh, and we can make progress within the next four, five, six years with uh, with AI and technology and education. That's why it made sense for us to start here. Well, Satya, thank you so much for joining us for the conversation today. Uh, with this podcast, it's called Supervised Learning because we go and talk to experts like yourself and understand what we can learn and how it can guide us in our work. So we're excited to bring others on the show, and I'm sure we'll have Satya back here again and again for more conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Levi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Supervised Learning. Until next time, keep learning. <laughs>